greet you this morning in the precious name of Jesus. Brother Clary, you're too kind. And we'll let it at that. Um, I think I am at the point where I, I um, well, I thought I was retired. And, and I, and I think, I think we're at the point now where I think our local ministry here, um, have developed the attitude that you just simply wear out the old first. <laughs> and then, and, um, maybe we should just let it at that too. All right. I will admit to you this morning that I, I struggle a lot more to try to get things together, keep together, and to, to share what I think is an effective way, in an organized enough way that, that you can get a hold of something. And then I have to remember you know what the the uh, attempts that we make can only be a blessing as the spirit gets a hold of that and conveys it to your heart in a way that I could never do and so please look at it in that sense this morning and maybe as we look at what I feel, what I want to share with you this morning maybe you'll think it's it's a rehearsal of some of the Sunday school lessons that we've been looking at, at least in the adult um, lessons. It's a rehearsal of some of the things that we've been looking at in our Sunday school lessons. And that isn't always bad. But my aim this morning is that I would like for, for us as a church recognize that as as the children of Israel struggled in their journey, they were trying to find their way. And you know, we look at we look at the difficulties that they faced. We look at the reactions that they expressed in in the different situations that they faced. And we say, how could they do this? Why didn't they just you know, God had, ex- had, had revealed Himself in such spectacular ways. And, and He had, in, in very outward marvelous ways, had directed them, had led them, had just over and over again. And you just go back and look at some of the lessons that we looked at, uh, you know, in the last month and a half, or maybe even two months. And God really did take care of His people. And yet they struggled. But you know, even today, would you say, would you say that, that the church today, God's people, would you say that, that we struggle? Are there things, are there difficulties? Are there people that, that lose their way do we have to 
Do we have to put a direct a lot of energy to try to help people to maintain their relationship with the Lord? Is there any hope? And when we see people, well, we all know that that we struggle. And Brother Gerald, you made that statement this morning, and I'm not picking at it. it. I'm just you said something about. That one phrase in that verse of song that you struggle with. Can you just remind us of that? Um, yeah, yeah, just say it again. Everything that was that I caught in the Sunday school lesson this morning, I probably got a hold of me the most. But I want you to understand that not all hymnology is correct theology. No. In fact, um, we could look at all of the songs that we sing over and over again, and there are certain concepts in there that are not quite correct theology. Okay. Well, anyway. When it says we're prone to wander, it yeah. means it's a human tendency to yeah. wander from God. Okay. You know, it's, we have to be on guard. All right. Uh, yes, we do have to be on guard. Now, thinking back in our past Sunday school lessons, and we looked at some of these things that the that the children of Israel struggled with. I'd like for you to keep that in mind, and I'd like for you to turn with me to uh, Acts, the seventh chapter. We're going to look at the at the testimony of Stephen. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but there are a few things that I'd like to just to pick out here and to use as kind of a springboard for the approach to the message this morning. Acts chapter 7. What I'd like to do in the, in the going through this message today, I'd like to look at, we're going to rehearse just a little bit of some of these things that, that the Old Testament church actually struggled with. What were some of these things that they rebelled, how they rebelled against God? How did they resist God's ways? We're going to take just a bit of time. It's just very brief. Then I want to look at some of the things that the church battles with and struggles today. And then I'd like to end up with, let's, let's get a glimpse, at least a glimpse of what the overcoming church is like and what God really expects of us today. In the battles that we have, yes, there are those temptations to lose our way. And yet, we can't overcome. And we must hang on to that. Alright. Coming to Acts chapter 7, I'd like to begin reading at verse 33. And this is, this is Stephen's defense of his approach of his own life and, and um, his defense of the gospel. Then said the Lord to him, and he's going through the history 
of the children of Israel. He said, The Lord said to him, that is Moses, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years, this is that Moses which said to the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto you. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the light lively or living oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and their hearts turned back again into Egypt. I just want you to catch some of these things that, that Stephen is, re, uh, is rehearsing here. Saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For this Moses, for as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him, and they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets, O ye house of Israel. Have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrificed by the space of four years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Molech, and, and this idolatry that they Got, them, uh, got themselves into, and then the judgment at the end of this verse. Now, here you have a bit of a picture of how God worked with his people in very spectacular, outstanding ways, and he brought deliverance to them. And yet, they wanted to turn back. They struggled all the way through this whole 40-year period. They kept struggling over and over Again, I'd like for you to turn now with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'd like to note just a few things from this passage. The first 12 verses, Moreover, brethren, I would that ye should, not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. We're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and then the spiritual drink and the rock, and so on. Now these things were our examples in verse 6. To the intent, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ. Some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye. Some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And I want you to especially catch the next two verses here. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed 
lest ye fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to men. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Some of the things that we can learn from here is that God, in very, very spectacular ways, took his people, delivered them from the bondage of Egypt, took them out so that he could bring them in. And now this passage back in in Acts chapter 6, it calls this group of people, whom we now call the Israelites, they were the church in the wilderness. And I found it interesting that the word church there has the same meaning, the root meaning is what the New Testament continues to speak about God's people in this time as His chosen people. So they were the church. And it's it's amazing to me how God worked with them. It's amazing to me that God didn't wipe them out completely. In fact, He threatened to do that on several occasions. But God in very spectacular way delivered them from the bondage that they were in and and this struggle that they had. We could could go back and we could go through and look at all of these things that happened and how God worked with them and He punished them. He chided them. In fact, sometime, sometime go through that history and count how many people probably died in that 40-year period. Anyone have an idea? You better check it out. You might be amazed. Think about this. What was the punishment? What was the punishment for their rebellion and not going in when God took them initially up to the border, said, I'm going to give the land to you. Go in, possess it. But they didn't go in. So what was that punishment? Okay. Now, mm-hmm. all right. I did a little bit of figuring one time. And in that 38-year period from the time that they had gone up to the border first, refused to go in, and then that 38-year period, and there were approximately 600,000 men that were 20 years old or older. And in that 38-year period, just those 600,000 men alone That's not women, and that's not including, that's not including, um, other calamities that came and other reasons for people dying. But, that was almost 90 funerals a day. Can you imagine that? A constant reminder, day after day after day of their rebellion, their rejection. And here's some of the things that... that that uh, I want to give you seven things that I think that happened. I was going to give you opportunity to share some of the things. What were some of the ways, very quickly, 
Um, what were some of the things that happened in that 38-year period that God brought judgment and punishment upon them? You know the story. Let's just rehearse a little bit. That's how we remember things. What are some of those things that happened along the way? Idolatry. Okay. What kind of a punishment did God bring on them when they fell into idolatry? What was it? What happened? What happened at that when 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 Aaron made that golden calf? What was the punishment for that? Think about that. Anyone know? Pardon me. Okay, you imagine that? And I read someplace, probably shouldn't go into this too much, but I read someplace that actually it was like similar to drinking blood because of the chemical reaction. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But it was detestable. God hates idolatry, right? God hates idolatry. And He showed his people very clearly. Alright, what else? What are the things what are the things that they get into? In fact, the book of Numbers about chapter twelve says that you have rebelled against me these ten times. What what were some of those occasions? Murmuring. Okay. Murmuring about what? The manna. The manna. Bread. What other food did God give them because they complained? <coughs> Wake up. What? Quails. Do you remember the story about the quails? Go back and read that again. They begged for meat. They begged for meat. Yes, we have the manna. But that's all we have every day. Three meals a day. But they kept complaining. So God said, oh, okay, I'll give you meat. And you know what? It says that they gorged themselves on the meat. They could not control themselves. And God destroyed a number of them because of that. I think it was in the thousands. Okay. Alright. What else did they complain about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, at one point, do you remember that Aaron and Miriam also reacted to his leadership? They reacted as well. And in essence, they were saying, okay, God made us about as smart as He made you. That's basically what they were saying. God brought punishment on them. What was the punishment that was brought on Miriam? She was a leper. All right. Then you have, then you have Korah and his company. They rebelled against God. Rebellion. We have as much understanding and we know God's will just as well as you do. 
and God destroyed them. So over and over again, they actually, it, they got to the point where they doubted God that He could take them into the land of Canaan. Right? They doubted whether He could take them in. And He had promised them over and over that He would take them in. He said, it's not possible. And so they said, what was their reaction when they openly doubted that God could take them into the uh, in back or take them into the promised land? What did they? What was their reaction to that? What did they say? Can you imagine that? Back to slavery. We look at them, and you know, do you think? Do you think we have any tendencies? Prone to wander. Do you think we have any tendencies to go back into slavery? Would there be a bent like that if we're not careful? We look at them and they say, how could they do this? Look what God had taken out out from. And then He wanted to take them in and yet they wanted to go back. It might have been part of it that the Egyptian company that had gone out from Egypt with them might have been inciting some of this rebellion. I don't know. But there is a distinct possibility because there was a sizable group of Egyptians that had gone out with them. But anyway, we look at this. What can we learn? Now, I want, to, I want you to think about some of the things that we may struggle with Today, and maybe some similarities, maybe some difference. But I have seven things that I think that, that the church today struggles with. And we may be afflicted with some of these things. There may be some things that, but you know what? I'm going to say this very carefully. But as long as long as it is, as long as it's only temptations, and and we struggle against that, the problem is when we give in to it. Am I, did I say it clear enough? We we struggle against some of these things, but as long as we don't fall into them and they overcome us. We are in a battle. Let's recognize that. We are in a battle. And there are things that become temptations to us and we must be fortified against them. Now, that's some of the things that the Old Testament church struggled with. Now, what are some of the things that we struggle with today in our period in history? And these are not in order of importance and that kind of thing. I just simply, as they came to me, I started looking at them. First thing that I've written here is complacency. What does it mean to be complacent? Stay with me. What does it mean to be complacent? Be satisfied. Okay, satisfied with the status quo. Um, not, you see... 
the Christian life and the, and the Scriptures over and over again talk about this reaching forth, going forth, growing, longing for higher ground, if you want to put it that way. But complacency. It's just, you ever get tired of you ever get tired of resisting? You know, resisting temptations, resisting against the things that Satan would bring against you to destroy you. It's too much, and so you can just complacent is just to to back away from that. Or actually, I think complacency is laziness. Really, it's laziness. We must be alert. As God's people, we must be alert. And as churches, we must be alert. We must consider our struggle in life as a matter of life or death. It's serious. We cannot get lazy. We cannot get lazy and just satisfied with where we are. I kind of brought in a few things here that should come a little bit later. I'm sorry about that. But let's never be satisfied with too little. I've reached it. Ah, I'm okay. Dare not happen. The second thing is individualism. Actually, actually individualism is a form and I think I'm correct in this. I tried to think this thing through. But I think of individualism is a form of rebellion. Now, I struggled with that a bit too, but I think I'm correct. And you can correct me later if you think it has nothing to do with that. But individualism is the kind of thing where it's somehow we, we may be tempted to we get tunnel vision. And this is how it is. And, and it's a lack of working with others, interacting. It's, it's a lack of accepting others for who they are. And uh, what happens is that, that in this thing of individualism, we, we ignore... We, 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 we ignore others, their input, I have it together. That'll take us out into the wilderness. It takes the church into the wilderness and away from God's plan. And I know some of these are going to overlap, so just please bear with me. Alright, the third thing is, another thing that, that is so destructive and the church needs to battle against this thing and we need to battle with it personally is the is this thing of a critical spirit now i know that a critical spirit leads into a lot of these things and so a critical spirit is one that is censorious you know what it means to be censorious uh, a, a sensory uh Vision of, of everyone. Um, uh, it's just so closely examining, and we even are 
critical of motives of people. We we uh, we we pick at even the motives of people. Um, but a censorious person picks apart everything and is down on everything uh, and everyone condemning, fault-finding, judgmental. And you could go on and on with the list. It, that's the kind of thing that will take the church into the wilderness and drive us away from God's plan for us as a church. The fourth thing is this thing of apathy. Apathy. A person who is apathetic is indifferent, lack of concern, a lack of interest as well. No enthusiasm, lethargic, lethargic, no, no drive. And you know, as God's people, as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us and works in our lives and, and, and ener- it, it energizes us, in a way that nothing else can. That's the work of the Spirit. So apathy will destroy the church and take us into the wilderness. I think another thing that is is very detrimental to the church is this thing of nearsightedness. It's just, it's just, maybe it's almost like tunnel vision. It's just, you know, the here and now, not even thinking about consequences of decisions, uh, of actions. It's just, oftentimes a nearsighted person is, in this context here anyway, that I'd like for you to consider is, it's an impulsive person not considering the results of actions. It's just for the moment, just for now. That'll destroy the church. Even as these other things that assailed the Old Testament church and it brought the judgment of God upon them. Even so, this will destroy the church today. And then there is this thing of laziness. Um... How many of you have ever been lazy? Oh, wow. I didn't think I'd see that many hands. How many of you are ambitious? Okay. All right. Well, have you ever, have you ever had the attitude when there is when there are struggles in the church, and then you never, you would never say this, but you would think it. Not my problem. It's not my problem. It's theirs. Um, I don't want to get involved, right? Don't 
bother me with this. Don't get me involved in this. And this laziness in a church setting, it just has so many, so many ways that it, that it reaches out into a practical way. Um, it can also, it can also um, affect in this way that I'll come to church, but don't ask me ever to do anything. Don't ever ask me to do anything. It's just, and then this thing of laziness said they did that. They are going this direction. That's their idea. There's, it's a detachment. A laziness, laziness is a detaching. What will happen to a church when the preachers get lazy? No implications of that happening here. I'm not, that was not an implication at all. But, laziness comes from a mindset that I'm not going to let anything bother me. So I come, I'll be in church, but don't bother me. And a lazy person actually eventually is resistant, becomes resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's dangerous. Alright. Let's then look at some positive things here. What are some of the qualities of an overcoming church? What, what, what does the, the living, hopeful, Blessed church. What does it look like? We looked at the church in the in the wilderness. We looked at the Old Testament church. We looked at what can happen today in the New Testament church. Now, what does what does the what does the living church, what does the hopeful church look like? The first thing. The first thing that I thought of when I was, was contemplating this is that the living, hopeful church is grateful. The living church is a, is a grateful church. And I know that, you know, you remember how that the, remember how that the Old Testament church was a complaining church? <clears throat> Nothing was right. They focused on what they thought they wanted that they didn't have and forgot what they had. A living, hopeful church is a bright, grateful church. First of all, it's, the living church is, is grateful for who God is. And because of who God is, that's why He does what He does for the church. And we focus on that. And you know, one of the things that, that a living hopeful church will do is express gratitude in the way they live and by what they say. And one of the things that, and I know you're going to say it's because you were in Haiti for two years, that's why you think this way. But I think sometimes... I just wish I could take you to Haiti, all of you, and just observe. 
And I know, I know, it would be way out of order if what happens in those churches down there would happen here. I understand that. Could we learn a little bit? I'm... Anyway, okay, we'll stop with that. But a grateful person expresses his gratitude. If you don't express your gratitude, then you're not grateful. Not saying too much. All right. But we need to praise God. We need to, we need to let God know that we, we appreciate what He has done and is continuing to do. A hopeful living church is an encouraging church. Not only a grateful church, but it's, it's an encouraging church. We bless each other. We build each other up. When someone struggles, we stand there with them, not to help struggle with them. Well, maybe that's part of it. But support and courage. We bless each other. A hopeful living church is a steadfast, unwavering people. Steadfast. We know wherein we stand. We know what truth is. We accept truth. We teach truth. We preach truth. We live truth. A hopeful, living church is steadfast. Unwavering. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what a hopeful, living church looks like. And not only that, but a hopeful living church is a confident church. Confident. Standing. Um, knowing. Yes, it's part of knowing. It's confident. is trusting. Not being tossed to and fro. Not back and forth. But it's it's Confidently going forth, not wavering. A hopeful living church is also a supportive church. And that is, everyone gets involved. A hopeful living church is where, where people are joined together and we bless, we support, we're involved. It's where we belong. It's a part of us. It's our life. That is the hopeful living church. And I believe also that the hopeful living church is serious. But it's also joyful. And you know, uh, excuse me. Somehow, somehow we've gotten to the place where we can't, we 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 cannot uh, put this thing of being serious. It, yes, it's a matter of life or death for us, really, spiritually. And so we need to look at it that way. But it's not down. But it is hopeful. It is joyful and it expresses itself. And I know these have overlapped, but maybe that will help you get a hold of some of these things. 
And the seventh thing is, a living, hopeful church considers the reward. And I know I've heard, I've heard people say already, you know, we should not, we should not just, you know, look at the reward. Well, it needs to be, our focus needs to be broader. But, if it would not be for the reward of being faithful as a part of the hope of living church, if there would not be a reward, why? Would you put yourself into it? You say, well, it would be just for the blessing that we get now. You know what? The blessings that we get now, being part of the church, is just a glimpse of the reward that is coming. Yes, there is a reward. I'm looking forward to that. That's an eternal reward. A living, hopeful church. The church is worth being a part of because of who is the head of the church. The church is worth all the time and energy that needs to be expended in being a contributing part of the church. A living, hopeful church is worth talking about. Talk about it. Share it with others. A living, hopeful church is worth living for. And then it is worth dying for. Would you kneel to pray, please?